I always say police control goes beyond the control. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. This is a trigger warning. This episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people may find difficult to listen to. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. Um, Also, this is our fifth and final collaborative episode with the Institute of Race Relations official journal, Race and Class. We are really excited today to be joined by Vanessa E. Thompson. Um, who is a research associate and lecturer in comparative cultural and social anthropology at the Europa University in Frankfurt, Germany. Her research and teaching is focused on black studies, critical race and racism studies, post and decolonial feminist theories and methodologies, gender studies, critiques of policing and abolition. Now, Vanessa is absolutely amazing scholar and we feel so so excited to have you on the show Vanessa because your paper speaks to a lot of issues that we've been talking about on the show over the past year in particular the paper is titled that we're going to be discussing today policing in Europe disability justice and abolitionist intersectional care oh what an introduction Thank you so much for coming on the show, Vanessa. Thank you so much for having me and for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here and to discuss with you and uh, being exchanged with you. Thank you so much, Vanessa. So we're going to start off by just talking a little bit about yourself, Vanessa, um, how you came to be writing about policing, abolition and intersectional responses to these things. Thank you so much for that uh, question, because I think it's it really is also important to think of how actually our work is also grounded in experiences and practices, never limited to it, but still in a way shaped by it. I work in the university, I teach and do research in this field of critical racism studies, black studies, and Um, policing and abolition. And at the same time, it is not only something I theoretically think about, but something that I'm also engaged with as an activist who works with different institutions, different initiatives and um, organizations around these questions. And of course, these questions as a Black person uh, growing up and living in Europe also shape my everyday experiences. I have a rather transnational background. My family lives, uh, part of my family lives in the US. So actually the question of carceration, criminalization runs through my family in a way. And and I was exposed to that from a very young age. So actually being exposed to this question of how come certain groups are deemed criminal and do not have certain access to forms of care and support, but are rather punished in their everyday lives is something that was 
of interest, quote unquote, to me from a very early age. Growing up in Germany, I realized it was not only a U.S. phenomenon, right? So um, the question of policing, but also incarceration, detention centers was something that was then also present many of the lives of the people I was growing up with, of friends of mine, particularly people whose parents were refugee or refugees or asylum seekers, brown people, black people, migrants of color. So it's actually like the question of criminalization and policing and incarceration actually shaped my experiences. I think an important point in terms of like seeing how my work is actually grounded also in kind of in the social world we are all in a way em- embedded in it was then through working more explicitly around questions of black resistance um, that I, I learned to theorize more ab- about and, and engage with also black radical literature and analysis of the, these phenomena and structures of oppression like criminalization and incarceration and policing. So I would say that it, it's much more than just a research interest. It's actually um, also something that struggling through, thinking through, never by myself, always collectively engaging with also for a kind of cause, which of course then is also the, um, the kind of dismantling, but also, yeah, the abolition of systems and structures of oppression and criminalization that render life impossible, if you if you want to put it like that. And that's also how I um, try to, to deal with some of these issues as a person who's also working with activists and organizers. I was a, a co-founder of the initiative for Christi Schwundek. Christi Schwundek is a, um, was a Black migrant a woman who was uh, shot in a job center. A job center is where you actually apply for social service support um, in Germany. And she actually went to the job center on the 19th of May in 2011 because she hasn't received her money on the 19th of May. Usually you, they will transfer you money each month. It was the 19th of May. She was without any money and asked actually for 10 euros in advance. Also, she, she hasn't received her so-called social benefits. Nobody really know what exactly happened there because the testament monies are actually going in, in different directions. But the, at the end of this so-called conflict, Christy Schwundek was dead. That happened in the city where I actually lived for a very long time. So we founded an initiative and tried to do actually several things because on the one hand, people, there were some initiatives working around death in custody, um, racial profiling, et cetera, mainly migrant and black and brown initiatives, anti-racist initiatives. But that was very often around masculinity, right? And it was really important to bring the case of Christie into that discussion to actually show that policing unfolds alongside intersectional vectors, that it also affects Black women and non-binary folks, particularly poor, migrant, and often asylum-seeking. So actually, the initiative also tried to struggle for justice for Christie in terms of remembrance, but also in terms of lawsuits. 
but also tried in the broader anti-racist network to push for more intersectional analysis of how these modes of criminalization actually function alongside entangled vectors of oppression, uh, specifically in this current conjuncture of racial gendered capitalism, where it's very much around criminalizing so-called surplus populations, um, often black, brown and migrant populations. Wow, wow. What an introduction to this episode, Vanessa. What I always find interesting is that this work, kind of going back on what you said, is a bit up upon experiences or lived experiences. But these narratives are always challenged by the mainstream. So we, we are trying to tell them or articulate a particular, a particular experience of policing or, or of care or whatever, it is, but it's never listened to. If we relate this to all kinds of notions of racial analysis, our lived experience is what we're trying to articulate, how, how oppressive these systems are, but we always get pushback. How do we articulate this, given that the history, genealogy is always uh, pushed back on our lived experience? Mm-hmm. How do we convince or put across our idea so, it, so this time it sticks? Thank you so much for that intervention, T, as well, because I think it does really speak to the current conjuncture, as you were saying, mm-hmm. Vanessa, because we're all sat having a conversation in this room because of so many people that we look up to that have written and done incredible activism and scholarship to bring these ideas and analysis to the forefront. But like a consistent theme is that we are not believed. Our bodies are so often racialized in a way that doesn't position us as worthy of care and worthy of consideration of how the state oppresses us. So it's really interesting, like it doesn't matter how many ways that you show this, whether it's visually, whether it's through videos, whether it's through scholarship, whether it's through films, TV shows, there's still this sort of lack of empathy, compassion within the mainstream as to what is happening. Have we seen maybe some concessions be made in terms of how we a policing is viewed or not? Was it a, was it a snapshot? Yeah. Oh, thank you for this. These are like huge questions <laughs> because I think like the role of this experience is so important for a kind of for generating knowledge. And it has been theorized by so many black radical and also other Um, scholars, also feminist scholars, black feminist scholars, so-called standpoint theories, which has also come from a Marxist tradition that actually show that people have an understanding of their worlds, like they have an understanding of actually what's going on. (laughs) And we see this often also when we look at the kind of instances of, for, for instance, police killings, like For example, then families would say, I know this person would never kill themselves, right? Very often in Germany, when it comes around police uh, death and custody, then the narrative of suicide is very popular, that it said, okay, this person killed themselves in custody. And then you have family and friends who actually have this kind of conviction to say like, well, actually, no, this person would never have done this to themselves and start to generate knowledge around their experiences in terms of creating knowledge of how actually the structures and systems cause harm and and violate and brutalize 
uh, multi-marginalized communities. And there is a, a whole strand and archive of knowledge on this, right? If we think, for example, of, of Franz Fanon, a very important anti-colonial uh, theorist, psychoanalyst too, who actually also wrote about this, about how our lived experiences actually also shape our understandings of the world. And at the same time, we have to link this to kinds of like, or ground this in the kind of political analysis, which springs from these lived experiences, but are never limited to these, meaning that also other people who do not make the same experiences can also ally in that analysis, right? So um, that's, I think, is very important if we think about coalitions and stuff, you know, because we like our social positioning can merge with our political and theoretical positioning, but it's never just like the same. We have to struggle around it. We have to do the work around it to also create coalitions. But in terms of these kinds of ways of what you both also asked around not being believed, constantly individualize these cases, right? In Germany, there's this narration of the Einzelfall, meaning it's the single case. Like you have one single case after another and people would, all, and specifically dominant society would say, well, that's a single case. They don't want to see systematic uh, or the, the systematic working of actually policing or the prison system and how it actually affects particularly uh, black, brown, and, and migrant bodies. And that's often derailed, often also said as, okay, these are individual cases, or like you said, where communities are not believed. And I think, of course, this has to do with power. This has to do with a struggle around um, hegemony, right? So in a narrative that's under, in a national narrative, where a nation configures itself as anti-racist or non-racist, um, people who will point at, analyze, and struggle against the structural dimension of racism and also analysis will have to be disqualified because the hegemonic narrative is actually, well, our nation is non-racist or or whatever. So I think it, it also has very much to do with this kind of hegemonic ideas and framework, which shape a nation or the self-understandings of people, right? Um, and that's something we, I think, just continue, we just need to continue to do that, to really dismantle these kinds of understanding. And we have a long history with we I, I, I hear we mean people working in these fields struggling on, uh, around these fields on the streets but also in the academy um, there's a long history of actually a systematic analysis of these um, modes of oppression exploitation criminalization incarceration and we can draw on that because there's an archive right and I, I think it's important to just to just continue also it's difficult sometimes specifically when it's around these questions of not being believed and, and also having the feeling you sometimes have to do the work over and over and over again, right? Like when it comes to policing, there's another case of a, of a person being killed and you actually know the, what the families will have to go through, right? That they are actually the ones who are often doing the main work in terms of asking the questions, organizing and whatever. And we see often history repeating but at the same time, this is also repeating itself because we, 
we live in the same system, which is actually also grounded in the exploitation and oppression of specifically racialized poor populations. So at the same time, I do think, and that maybe relates to the question of last year, the global Black Lives Matter uprisings and, and protests. And I think here it's important to have Hope is usually not my word, but I, I think this it's, it's important to see the change there because these were some of the largest anti-racist protests we've seen in history, particularly also with their global dimensions, right? If we look at, I know like you both in the UK, I don't know the exact numbers of how many people, but I know it were really, really many. Same with France, Germany. Spain, Italy, and that was only Europe. Then you take the US. We had folks like massively demonstrating in Nigeria against SARS, in Kenya. So I think what we see here was really the transnational and global dimension of struggles against policing. And I do think that also much of it was geared towards the US. I think people brought it home by also showing, no, this is not only happening in the US, this is happening in the UK since a long time, this is happening in France since a long time, this is happening in Germany since a long time, and we need to also struggle against it in terms of a transnational movement. So even going, of course, beyond the nation state borders, which is also a kind of violent category, um, to, to struggle against policing. And here, I really see that things have changed also in terms of of these mass protests. And this has to do with the work that the organizers and initiatives have done before, because otherwise you cannot sustain such large protests, right? And also, of course, the, the work that, that abolitionist organizers have done before, because even that you have slogans now like defund the police or whatever, year-long abolitionist work <laughs> um, and organizing, right? That people can now even are closer to imagining that a world without police is possible, that a world without these systems of carceration is possible. So when I think of the genealogy of this, and especially when you talk about the transnational dimension, so I think about after World War II and like the internationalism there, and I think about the 70s and 80s, literally the feminists and the black radicals, there is a history of this. This current moment, I guess it's the kind of neoliberal individualism that's kind of atomized people. And I feel, I feel kind of positive from last year that we had this kind of what we spoke up before this pollination this idea that we can find these interlinks through our lived experience so we don't have to share that experience but there's similarities in response to state structures yeah definitely 100 percent. and based on what we're talking about in terms of transnationalism is to bring it back to one nation in particular and thinking about um the german context what you've been working on in terms of policing, um, violence and deaths in custody. I think that's really a, a very important point. The notion of transnational solidarity in terms of that these experiences are shared. They're never the same because each nation has like its own kind of history, you know, of like dealing with racism concealed. Even colonial histories, they're different. But at the same time, colonialism, um, or colonial projects, national colonial projects very much also converge with each other. So, and that's why I think transnational or international perspectives are so important because the systems we come up against, they are transnational, right? Systems of borders, the system of prisons, these are like transnational complex, so to speak. Um, and I think that makes that, that 
urges us to not stay within the nation in terms of struggling against systems of oppression, criminalization, and ex exploitation. And at the same time, like you said, there is a long history of doing that also in Europe. And I think that's very important. If we think, for example, of like, I don't know, the first half of the 20th century, like the, the histories of Pan-African Congresses, and you had like Black communists meeting in, in all kinds of um, European cities coming together, organizing together. Then, of course, after the Second World War, the 60s, you know, various Black power formations, which actually also interestingly um, shaped even the question of Blackness in a very interesting also way of solidarity. I mean, the UK is a great example for this, you know. And I, I do think these histories are part of why and, and how we see also the kind of a transnational solidarity now in, in this kind of conjuncture of the Black Lives Matter protest. And at the same time, I think we need to do some more work around that because people protesting and taking into the streets and, and struggling against carceral systems, they often know the names of, of Mike Brown, of George Floyd, of Eric Garner in the US, but often, for instance, in Europe, people in France don't really know the name in the UK. I don't know if people in the UK know the names in France and, and Germany, right? So I think there's still much more work to do in terms of transnational organizing, but also transnational exchange of strategies, of abolitionist practices. Um, so I think, yeah, we're in this transnational moment. There's a lot have been done already, but of course, there is still much to do. But I, I do think that so many people are doing the work and it's, and it's impressive to see that, particularly also in a time of a pandemic. You know, that's where I think like it's really tough to see how people are struggling for their lives, caring for their communities, caring for their communities' lives, and for, in a way, uh, and, and building different worlds and new worlds in this moment of a global pandemic. We know about George Floyd and, and the people that died in America, but in a European context, we don't know about one another. So I don't know what's happened to black people in Germany in as much detail. Maybe that's because of how the geographies of slavery and colonialism, how they enacted. In the US, slavery was present all the time. It's something they had to police, they had laws on, and it's commented upon, and it's very visceral in your face. Whereas in the European context, whenever there's a black population, they export their problems. So for example, in the 1780s, when the black population got too big in London, they exported them to Sierra Leone. So they had a problem with race, but it was never contextualized as a national problem. It's something that happens elsewhere. And that's that narrative that still comes through to today. It is a problem because yeah. people talk about their lived experience, but they say that's a problem elsewhere. Yes, I agree. I think various European nations have very good national strategies to portray themselves as raceless, right, or multicultural or, or whatever, and, and like completely detaching from the existence, but also the histories, material histories of racism. Like, for example, France does this to a kind of, to a kind of universalism. The Netherlands refer to this kind of ideology of tolerance, for instance, right? Um, Germany, yeah, it took Germany a long, long time until Germany even perceived itself as a migration country, for instance, while it was extracting the labor of migrant labor and, and had also colonies. So I think there is this kind of what Paul Gilroy also calls post-colonial melancholia, but also a form of amnesia, of violently erasing uh, these kinds of 
um, histories. And as you said, because a lot is also linked to external colonies, it, there's still the mode of like saying, okay, racism is something that happens only over there or in the past or on an individual level. I think this is like this kind of threefold disqualification strategy, right? To externalize it, to locate it in the past, or to reduce it to kind of individual opinions or prejudice or, or whatever. At the same time, I see similarities when it comes to European countries. And I think that's where racialized black and brown people in these respective countries can actually learn from each other in terms of strategies of, of struggling against that and also of, of not playing into this kind of methodological nationalism, right? But to say, okay, actually the systems we come up against be it the border systems or the prison systems, they work in, uh, in convergence. We just need to see at Frontex, for instance, right? The whole so-called border police at the European outer borders. That's European framework in a way, right? So I think the, the forces to struggle against that also need to go beyond the nation state, while at the same time, not forgetting or concealing how, of course, these kinds of powers and systems of oppression work locally. So I think it's always important to link the local with the global in these kinds of, of dimensions. But yeah, I think that's, that's a very important point um, in terms of how do histories of enslavement and colonialism actually also shape the kind of uh, material narratives um, and also how this actually plays into uh, our struggles. I think the points that you're making are really important in terms of creating more broader coalitions and also educating people to come along this road with us. Now, what I mean by that is just thinking about this present moment, I think we have the attention of people that we wouldn't necessarily have had a year ago, for example. Mm -hmm. So what are the things, what are the practical things that we can do to connect the struggles that happen locally, globally? And because I think sometimes we've, we've gone in with the theory and the theoretical and the methods and gone connect it to global straight away. But actually a lot of people aren't thinking about abolition, even if they're affected, even if they're oppressed by the state on a day-to-day -day basis, they're not thinking about this on their, in their day-to-day. -day. They don't have the space to. So how can we bring people with us on a low, in a local context, familiarizing and framing the local and then bringing it to the global. I'm literally just talking about a praxis that I know organizers and abolitionists have done for a long, long time, but just sort of reiterating that fact of what you've just said, particularly for our listeners that are thinking about how do I start to bring people with me that are within my life, that are within my peer groups. And it's really thinking about the, the practicalities of ex explanation, connecting transnationalism, but also bringing it back to what is happening, what's happening in our borough, what's happening in our town. How is that connect across? How does that connect to some, what, what's happening in Frankfurt? Like build the building blocks essentially. Yeah. It's really about like how to organize in like the in the local context. And I think one dimension is, of course, having these conversations. I think that's very important. Also, it's very basal. I think what like I learned from the kind of organizing against racist policing, stop and frisk, racial profiling in various 
continental European context is often people don't really talk about these experiences. And there we come back to the question of experience. Often it's like isolated or people don't really, you know, feel also ashamed that they've been like criminalized by police several times a week, etc. So I think it's important to say, well, this is actually a collective everyday experience to open the space to talk about these kinds of experiences. And then by learning that others make these experiences to bring people into political organization in terms of the question, well, how, what can we actually do about it? How can we actually organize around it? How can we organize in a way that people on the one hand know what they can do about it? How can we also organize people who are usually just walking by, right, to give them to intervene? And then I think in terms of transnational dimensions, being in contact then with other groups and grassroots movements in various uh, other contexts is important for this kind of transnational dimension. I, may, I, I give you one example. In, in Germany, there is an initiative, which is the initiative in remembrance of Uri Jalo. Uri Jalo was burned in a police cell in, in a German a town called Dessau. His body was brutally burned, and his and it of course it was, as I said, the narrative is always suicide in Germany very often, but his hands and feet were actually uh, handcuffed to a fireproof mattress. The lighter didn't have his DNA, so there are many many questions would actually show that he could not burn himself in this cell. The initiative in remembrance of Urijalo, which was founded actually shortly after they found out about Urijalo's death, organized asked several questions, pushed for memory, scandalized the death, organized protests, manifestations, etc. And what they did two years ago was doing a European-wide conference where other families and organizers around death and custody also came from various contexts. So there were representatives of France, families, Marcia Rigg came from the UK. And I think that was really, really important because there the knowledge from the various contexts was actually brought together. And what was really powerful for the families to see, I think, um, at least as they ex explicated it, was we're actually experiencing similar modes of covering what happened to our loved ones. And that was a very powerful moment in terms of sharing these kinds of experiences in a political way and then drawing the connections in analysis to also find ways to struggle against that. So I think it's necessary to, to ground practice locally and then say, okay, how can we now bring the local practices and experiences into conversation with other local practices and experiences? And how can we create space for that? And then also think about strategies, transnational strategies in terms of um, how can we protect our communities, abolitionist strategies, what works, what doesn't work. Because I think also with these kinds of notions, right, like contexts also differ. We have to think about like now a lot in the U.S., of course, is going on around scaling up. How do you scale up kind of abolitionist community, just uh, transformative justice, community accountability practices? This can differ in terms of also various contexts, right? So I think it's important to open the space, to take the space, to organize the space, to have these discussions also in a transnational way and formation. And of course, then also comes the question, who can travel? Where do we get the funds? How do we redistribute resources? 
um, who can be active in that. But I think like that was a really powerful conference because people really came together from European context and experienced by the narrative of communities from another context, actually, how similar these experiences were and how the systems we come up against are actually in close conversation, in close relation to each other. And I think that's maybe also the question, like you asked about the German context a bit, like you already asked, in, also in Germany, there's this kind of narrative of detaching from racism, of concealing the structure of racism, of locating it somewhere else or in the past, or as an individual notion. And it's not like people, of course, in the German context have always struggled against policing. Policing has colonial roots and histories, and it's very much about actually a function also in racial gendered capitalism to secure property. And property was generated by the expulsion, exploitation of, of um, mainly racialized um, labor. So in Germany, there's, of course, the history of policing, which is strongly racialized, but it's at the same time concealed. Many initiatives and organizations struggle against that. And more and more, in, this happened more and more in the last 10 years, I would say. And, um, and it was mainly around racial profiling, stop and search controls, um, to bring this in a kind of um, a more popular discourse and to find strategies to, to struggle against it and to also work with communities to struggle against it. And I then also wrote this article because I was struck by how, when it comes to racial profiling, but also death through policing, murder, killings, etc., an intersectional lens often looks at then how class and uh, poverty and maybe gender relations and status in terms of citizenship status intersect, but seldomly mental health. Also, so many of the people who are actually, um, who die in police custody, but also not only in custody, but also in the public or in, uh, I don't know, like Christy Schwundek, in the social service uh, center, actually also are struggling with mental vulnerabilities. And there I was really trying to figure out, okay, what does that actually mean um, for an analysis of policing? How does policing draw us on mental health, also historically? And what does that mean for our organizing? Vanessa, would you be able to speak to abolitionist intersectional care as a response to that and what that looks like? For my own experience in terms of policing, not only am I navigating my physicality, not just policing, my kind of interaction with the mainstream. So I have to navigate my mental state. So I'm always a question, when I approach people, am I too, being too aggressive or am I being too... So it's always, I'm always even navigating my body or my mind in certain situations in the mainstream. So I do not want to be seen as overly aggressive, but I'm not approaching it in that, in that kind of mental state. But it's that constant that negotiation through my body without me doing anything. Definitely. And I think Tiso is actually drawing to something that really comes through in your article is like you write about it so well in terms of connecting, yeah, disability justice, mad studies and then abolitionist care that you kind of see yourself and how you have um, or how we as mm -hmm. black people navigate the world, like just that connection between hyper ability and hyper disability sort of colliding. For me, it's yeah, pretty mind blowing. Thank you for sharing this, because I think it's really important to, to not underestimate what this actually does 
mentally, right? To to know to to know and to feel how your body is perceived in the dominant registers of criminalization and brutalization. And at the same time, one has to act on that is causing mental stress. And I think that's very important that it's causing a kind of policing causes. I always say a police control goes beyond the control in terms of it's not only that kind of moment you have to identify yourself, stand against the wall or something, but it's also the stress or the violence that goes beyond the, the control, right? The kind of slow and fast violence that impacts you afterwards. Um, people can get depression from, from these kinds of policing modes um, and whatever. And here we see the connection between um, mental health and policing. And this extends the subject. If we think about, for example, families who are struggling for their loved ones, right? They also are, have to take a, a huge load in terms of mental vulnerabilities. And, and this, I think, is one important relation, the relation between policing, mental vulnerability. And at the same time, we learn from, um, from critical math scholars and critical disability scholars. And here I, I have to like really say that I'm learning from them continuously because I just recently asked these questions when I when I actually was, was really struck around the case of um, of Tunum Bopta, the case I also talk in the article. I started looking for black analysis of mental vulnerability and disability. And here's the work of like Christopher Bell, Terry Pickens on, on blackness and the, the relation between blackness and madness. And also Rachel Gorman, critical math studies scholar. And they show in a very impressive way how actually sanism, which is the institutional and systemic oppression of people who either identify, have been diagnosed, or are perceived as mentally ill. So it's also a social construction in a way. Um, how sanism and anti-blackness and criminalization has always worked together in a way, right? If we look at, for example, enslavement, people, fugitives, people who run away were classified as mentally ill. And at the same time, if, even if we look at the construction of black bodies in the logics of exploitation, black bodies are constructed as hyper-able, right? Bodily hyper-able, hyper-sexualized, et cetera. So there is this kind of construction as the black body being a hyper-able body. And you need that construction for the legitimation of, of course, exploiting black people. And at the same time, there's the lack of the construction of the lack of ability, right? If we think, for example, construction of the angry black women, mental health always plays into the notions and the logics of racial gendered capitalism. And that's what I was actually trying to look at closer at this article. How does this actually goes together and how, how is this history actually also shaping current practices and experiences of policing and this has implications for our organizing against policing and particularly also abolitionist organizing and here i come to the question of like what is intersectional abolitionist care because i be believe learning from abolitionists myself my my comrades organizers um, co-thinkers that abolition is a form of care, first and foremost, right? I think in two sense. In one sense, it's not only a form of care work, because often in feminist discourses, people think of care work like the kind of reproductive work in the household that is devalued, whatever. That's 
definitely care work, but to caring for criminalized communities and to caring for people who are who are like killed on the outer borders for criminalized communities, incarcerated communities is the kind of work and labor for communities so that communities can sustain, can survive. So it's deeply embedded in kind of reproductive labor. And it is, I see it as, as fundamentally as a form of, of caring for each other and of changing our relations toward each other. And of course, this needs to be intersectional. We, we learned this from Black feminists, that it's not only, for instance, Black masculinities who are brutalized and criminalized and exploited by these systems, but particularly also migrant sex workers and people who are um, rendered asylum seekers, etc. And also people who identify or are constructed as mad. And that's how I end the article. I think like to think more about how can we really be accountable to also racialized folks who suffer and or who actually suffer from mental illness or are perceived or constructed as mad when we say something like care instead of cop, for instance, right? We're calling up on or sometimes this can be read in a way that we're calling up on the good side of the state, right? The social side, health institutions, et cetera, instead of policing. But what we learn from, from critical math studies, activists and scholars, is that these institutions, the psychiatry, the whole healthcare sector, has also very oppressive dimensions in terms of forcing people, in terms of the big pharma, in terms of forced drugs, restraints, the whole history of psychiatry is also a violent history where particularly racialized bodies were pathologized. And I think it's important if we think of like, okay, what do we actually mean when we talk about, well, why in this case was, was the police coming and not a mental health personnel or mental health service or something like that, then actually radical radical disability justice scholars and activists would, would urge us actually to think this through and to say like, okay, how, how can we develop a kind of care culture, abolitionist culture and practice that also centers and departs from the experiences of people who were uh, rendered and constructed as really ill and mad, because it's not going to help to only focus on the prison and the, and the border um, and, and the police, but we also need to see the kind of criminalizing um, notions within certain institutions where we would think, okay, these are actually institutions of care. Wow. I feel so inspired listening to you, Vanessa. And I just feel really grateful to have thinkers, scholars like yourselves that are able to communicate so clearly the things that we need to do, basically, the things that we need to do over and over again, as you said in the beginning. I think, you know, the possibility of the West, how they perceive black bodies, right? So as a black body, I'm physically physically dominating. I need to be controlled. So that policing is a response to that. But in the mental state, I'm incapable of thinking or development. So it's treated as primitive. So the response in the care side is seen as uh, to dope it up or to that disregard that they have entirely consistent with the colonial and slave logics of how they perceive black people. So mentally incapable. So you can't have a nation state. You can't do higher thinking. You don't do higher cultures. But physically, physically, you're more than capable of doing anything. In fact, so much so that you're a threat 
I had the same debate with someone and his response to me, and it, he was talking on an everyday basis. He said to me, physically, he was like, like you're, you're really strong naturally. I'm like, but how did you arrive at that? You just met me three days ago. But mentally, I said, but you, but you don't regard that mentally. You don't, you don't speak about me doing my PhD. You don't, you don't even consider that. The first thing you talk about is my physicality. And it's interesting yeah. how these logics just play through all the time. Definitely. And that's where I think this analysis helps us to, to understand. And like you said, it also comes from lived experience, how blackness is simultaneously perceived as hyper able and in lack of. Mm -hmm. You can take that in terms of black bodies, but you can also refer to that in terms of black nations, for example, right? If you look at Haiti, or if you look at I don't know, all kinds of just like African nations where there's always this kind of narrative of the failed state, right? And what gets completely out of sight in these kinds of racist logics are socioeconomic conditions and circumstances, right? So it's like you said, it's very much, it has strongly colonial roots, which also of course have a kind of legitimation function to exploit. Um, black people super exploit black people to enslave and, and colonize and, and brown people too and at the same time this kind of logic still operates today because often black and brown people are also erased from the kind of uh, notion of who is mentally like vulnerable right rather red than mental vulnerable and this is what the case of Christy Schwundek also showed strongly she was in a crisis when she went into that job center, her, her child just taken away from her. Oh, that's a whole nother discussion that is related to that, I think also, right? When we talk about abolition, we also need to talk about abolition of the foster care system because there's a long history of taking black and brown children out of their families into like in most of the, uh, as, at least European or, or states of the global North, black and brown poor kids are disproportionately present in the foster care system, right? So. I'm trying to, with alongside various other black abolitionist feminists, to, to, to think, okay, abolition is not only an issue for the prison, the border, and, and, and the police. It's also an issue for kind of institutions where we use, where some might, might use say, okay, these institutions are first and foremost institutions of care. But often these are also violent institutions. And with the, the question of mental health, I think it's, strong to see also how black people are written out of the perceptions of who actually deserves care and protection. Vanessa, thank you so, so much for joining us. Learned so much just from talking with you there. Like it's really, really such valuable insight that I think it's going to help a lot of people really think about this current um, conjuncture as we've been talking about. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and this really inspiring conversation with you too. We want to say a special thanks to, um, to conclude this series, a special thanks to the Institute of Race Relations, everyone that works at the Journal for Race and Class. We really want to thank um, Eddie Bruce Jones and Manish Bhatia for putting together the special issue, Race, Mental Health state and State Violence. Thank you to Tarek Yunus, Vanessa, of course, and Eddie and Manish for doing episodes with us. And also a big thanks to Sophia Siddiqui. One more thank you again to Vanessa for joining us today. Um, it's been really powerful. Thank you very much. Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 